Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, marking the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. It's really important for all of us to understand this history. As Canadians across the country commemorate the history and the legacy of residential schools, is the federal government still doing enough to foster reconciliation across the country? Coming up, we will speak to the Indigenous Services Minister about her government's priorities and where she believes her government must focus next. And... I also want to reiterate how deeply sorry Canada is for the situation this put President Zelensky and the Ukrainian delegation in. The Prime Minister apologizes for the presence of a Ukrainian war veteran who fought for the Nazis during President Zelensky's speech. But should the apologies stop there and what else needs to happen to address the wounds created by the diplomatic debacle? We'll speak to our weekend journalist panel. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Saturday will see this country's third National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, a day for all people to commemorate the history and the legacy of the residential school system in Canada, and the day itself a direct response to the TRC's 94 calls to action, number 80 stipulating the creation of a statutory holiday, describing it as a vital component of the reconciliation process. On Friday, the Governor-General hosted an event at Rideau Hall marking the National Day, a day before the official national event on Parliament Hill. When did you first hear about residential schools? Probably not too long ago. And it wasn't discussed in this country either. But now it is. And things are changing. Things are changing for the better. Inclusive history does not mean that we erase what we know. It means adding to history, giving it context and expanding it to include all perspectives. This is part of reconciliation and that's a lot of the work that I'm doing right now. Mary Simon from Friday. Now, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation has also become a day for all Canadians to evaluate how effectively the calls to action are being implemented and to reflect just how well or not reconciliation is actually progressing. Well, we're now joined by Patty Haidu, the Minister for Indigenous Services. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. Now, when your government was first elected, the Prime Minister called on his ministers to, to focus the relationship with this country's Indigenous peoples, and, and that was a hopeful sign for many. But now, I think there is greater skepticism around the Prime Minister's commitment. What would you say to that? Well, listen, I think that Indigenous people have been wanting an honest relationship with Canada for a very long time. And so I think that when people are impatient for action, it's an indication of just how long they've waited. And so I think that um, the kinds of structural changes that we're making through law and the changes in funding formulas that are, are focused on equity are certainly making a difference, but I think we still have a long road to go on reconciliation. Yeah, a long road, as you say. And, you know, I, I think a challenge for your government right now is the progress on the calls to action uh, from the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Only 13 of 94 
for are looked on as being completed and the Yellowhead Institute and I know you know this they're on record as saying at this rate the calls won't be met for another 40 years does your government have a sense of urgency around those calls still we certainly have a sense of urgency of working in a truthful, respectful way with Indigenous communities on issues that matter to them. And the things that, the kinds of investments that we've been making, for example, 156% increase in the uh, operations funding for First Nations communities, um, the attempt to end all boil water advisories with a huge amount of progress, uh, you know, the, the work on, on building housing together with First Nations on First Nations, so for example, for every one house built under the previous Conservative government, there's been nine repaired or built houses in, by the Liberal government. And then I would say the underlying legislative change that uh, is restoring self-determination to communities to operate in ways that um, uh, in many cases uh, are, are, well, in all cases, are actually culturally centered and appropriate. Okay, and, and I appreciate what you just said, that there's still this sense of urgency, but you know, I, I, uh, there has been this criticism that there's this perception that Indigenous issues have been put on the back burner, and when I say that, I'm thinking about uh, essentially the Native Women's Association of Canada, because as you know, they gave your government a failing grade when it comes to, to making progress on the, uh, the calls to action that came from the uh, National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Uh, do you understand that frustration? How, how would you uh, describe the source of that frustration? Well, I think that when I describe the source of the frustration, what I think is um, that systemic change that uh, colonial, the colonial uh, approach has, uh, uh, the, the systemic change that's required to move from a colonial top-down approach is challenging. And communities are, are anxious for change because it's their families we're talking about. Look, you know, when we talk about the missing uh, and murdered Indigenous women's inquiry, I was one of the first minister. I was one of the three ministers tasked to go around and, and talk to families as we launched that uh, inquiry in 2015. And what uh, families told us were just horrific stories of loss and trauma and pain. And we heard from women themselves who had survived um, many experiences of violence. So uh, impatience is completely understandable and in fact helpful because we want to move more quickly. I see the pushing of Indigenous people as an important piece of uh, fast action from not just our government, but the government of Canada. Canada writ large. And that's why the work that we're doing on the uh, things like passing the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People is so important. Uh, the hope, you know, I, I've mentioned this in other interviews, I will hopefully table water legislation this fall that will be the first legislation of its kind in, in um, uh, approaching, I think, full co-development with Indigenous people to meet the needs of ongoing clean water in First Nations. So we're changing the way that we create law in this country. That that's uh, difficult, but that is the foundational work that I think is going to ha bear the fruit of the kind of change people want. Okay, so as we approach another National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, then I'm wondering what your message is to Canadians, both Indigenous and not, uh, whose faith might be shaken not only in your government, but in Ottawa's ability to actually take on reconciliation more seriously and faster. 
Well, first of all, I would say that reconciliation is a path that all Canadians need to be on. You know, governments are held to account by voters, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and so we need to make sure that all of our parliamentarians here understand the importance of reconciliation, not just because it's the right thing to do, not just because we have legal agreements called treaties in some cases or other formal legal agreements, but because it makes a stronger country when everybody has a fair chance to succeed. What we're talking about, if we uh, endorse uh, systemic discrimination is we're talking about leaving people behind and that is uh, obviously terrible for the people uh, themselves but terrible for the potential of Canada. You've heard economists talk about the need to be focused on uh, our economic growth and our economic power and the ability for a better productivity in our country and part of that is making sure that people have all the tools of success. So what I would say is that this Liberal government is determined to continue on this path even though uh, conversations are always going to be challenging in this space but I think that as we create those tools of self-determination increasingly communities are becoming um, uh, they are taking back the power that's rightfully theirs to determine how best to raise children to have equity in education systems something else our government changed to make sure that uh, kids growing up in First Nations communities see themselves as having having a vital vital place in this community and that's going to take not only all levels of government but all Canadians to embrace this national project. Minister Heidi, always appreciate the time. Thank you for that. Thank you very much, Michael. Well, with more on this, we're now joined by Brenda Gunn. She is the Academic and Research Director at the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation. Ms. Gunn, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. So we just spoke, as you know, with the uh, Minister for Indigenous Services. Uh, I'm wondering how you would assess the federal government's progress in terms of fostering and bringing about reconciliation in this country. You know, I think progress is slow and it's not that it's too slow or I'm not meaning to say that. I just think that the amount of time it took us to get to where we are right now in Canada is centuries in the making. And so there's a lot of relationship to repair and it takes time. And unfortunately, I think government just, um, you know, it just takes a while to change systems. And so, you know, I, I see some progress. I definitely see and I hear differences in the relationships but there's still a lot of work to be done in order to make the deep changes in how the government operates that you know are is needed to really get us towards reconciliation. Mm -hmm. uh, would you say a bit more about that in terms of how you see that getting better? Sure, I think right now in Canada we have people who are really aware of the challenges that we have. More than ever, I see Canadians reaching out to gain education about the history and legacy of residential schools. I see the government working to reach out and work with Indigenous peoples more and more. But all of that goodwill and good intentions hasn't yet materialized into concrete changes in the justice system, in the healthcare system, in the education system, in the child welfare system, so that we can start to see a shift in some of these statistics that I think really underpin and can demonstrate the relationship that we have, right? So 
as long as Indigenous peoples are overrepresented in the justice system based on systemic discrimination, as has been stated by the TRC and many others, you know, there's just a lot of that really deep work to do. But I think some of those first steps of maybe trust building and relationship building has started. But we still need to work at changing those systems. Yeah, and, and underline what you were saying earlier about it takes a long time because uh, I, I think about uh, coming into work today and you see so many people already wearing orange, so many children going to school, for example, wearing an orange shirt uh, to school. So, so the dialogue is happening. But there's also, uh, I, I think, at least for me, a question as to how well-focused people in this country still are on reconciliation. Do you think that focus has softened? No, I, you know, I think ever since uh, Kamloops made the announcement of the unmarked graves at the former Kamloops residential school site, Canadians are mobilized now more than ever, at least at the first step of trying to learn the truth of the history and legacy of residential schools. We just had an amazing series of lunch and learns this week, and we had well over 2,000 people tuning in every day. And we were hearing feedback that many of those sort of views were actually offices watching the series together. And we had comments where people were saying, I've been here all week for the learning, right? So people committing five hours this week to join us on an education journey towards reconciliation. So like, I think the appetite is there, the desire. What is harder is moving past those first few steps of reconciliation on learning and unlearning some of the myths that people may have been raised and start thinking about how do we take this education into action? How do we start changing Canadian society now that we're all armed with more information? Okay, so Saturday is the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. What concretely then do you think people need to do as a next step in their learning uh, or perhaps even in their actions? So one of the opportunities that I think National Day for Truth and Reconciliation really presents to all of Canadians is a day every year where we stop and we pause and we remember the children that were taken from their families and sent to these institutions. And importantly, it presents opportunities to continue understanding this history, right? So no matter where you are on your journey, if it's your first time hearing about residential schools or if it's an area you've been thinking about for decades, there's always more to learn. So National Day for Truth and Reconciliation really provides that time and space to reflect and learn. And then for me, really importantly, is to make a commitment to action. So I really hope every Canadian stops and thinks about what can they do for reconciliation in Canada? What changes can they try to affect in their Themselves, in their families, in their communities, in their cities, in their provinces or territories or other nations. And then next year, come back to that and think about what worked. Where were you able to affect change? Where were the struggles? How can you do things different? And use National Day for Truth and Reconciliation as an annual check-in to make sure that we all stay committed to making the changes needed for reconciliation. Brenda Gunn, really appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Thank you so much.
And a programming note, CPAC will bring you the commemorative event from Parliament Hill, marking the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. You can watch the live event at 1 p.m. Eastern, and we will also air it at 7 p.m. and 11 p.m. Eastern, all on Saturday. Well, let's turn now to the apology delivered by the Prime Minister on behalf of Parliament. This for the presence of a Ukrainian veteran at last week's historic speech from President Zelensky, because as we now know, that veteran was invited by the former Speaker Antti Rhoda and had fought in World War II for the Nazis. On behalf of all of us in this House, I would like to present unreserved apologies for what took place on Friday and to President Zelensky and the Ukrainian delegation for the position they were put in. For all of us who were present to have unknowingly recognized this individual was a terrible mistake and a violation of the memory of those who suffered grievously at the hands of the Nazi regime. Well, to talk about the week events, we are now joined by Robert Fife, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Stephanie Levitz is national reporter for the Toronto Star, and Laura Osman, political reporter for the Canadian Press. Hello to the three of you. Hello. Thanks for having us. So obviously a very busy week, another busy week uh, on the Hill. But I, I want to begin here with the question that was asked of the Prime Minister yesterday, because as you know, he was asked about uh, whether or not Kiev or Zelensky has responded to the apology that we just heard. And in answering the question, we, we got a non-answer from the Prime Minister essentially saying, well, we support Ukraine. What do you take out of the question and the way he responded to that, Bob? Well, first of all, let me just say I'm appalled by the government's response on this. It took the Prime Minister five days to apologize on behalf of the Canada, uh, both to President Zelensky, but on, on behalf of the Canadian government to the world. It took four days for this uh, Anthony Rota to do the right thing, which is to resign. If he had resigned on Monday, he would have been regarded as an honorable person. And, you know, goodness knows he might have been able to win the speaker's thing if he allowed his name to stay in because he did the right thing. But the prime minister should have come out on Monday and said, on behalf of Canadians, uh, I'm, I offer my uh, deepest apologies. And, and we did not do that. And, and Rhoda did not do that. The Ukrainians were really upset about this. Why? Because they didn't even need fake Russian disinformation campaigns to use against the Ukrainians because they've been saying the Ukrainians are supportive of the, uh, are Nazis. And so there we go. We got a Nazi in the House of Commons and we're all clapping at him. And so they were really, really upset. And they're not, obviously not going to come out and say anything critical of the Canadian government because we've given them a, a lot of money and so, uh, for weapons and arms and, and financial aid. Uh, and we're, they're not going to do that. But up privately, they'll tell you, they're really upset. Well, you know, and from that point, you know, the silence is deafening on this one. If he can't answer how uh, Kiev or Zelensky has responded to the apology. Uh, Stephanie, what do you make of it? I make of it a, a failure of leadership. Um, and not just on the part of the Prime Minister. I think it's a failure of leadership for all of the elected members of Parliament who were in the House that day. I think everyone can apologize. I don't think it just needs to be the Prime Minister standing up on behalf of the Parliament of Canada, which is important and should stand. Um, but they were all there. And why they all need to apologize is because it was a shocking moment where it's clear that we all forgot our history. And while we can talk about the Prime Minister should have come out on Monday and apologized, actually the Prime Minister should have come out on Saturday and apologized because that's when this started 
coming out when everyone started realizing. And I think I take the point of those who say, well, in the moment, you know, maybe they weren't listening and maybe, you know, everyone starts clapping. So you just get on your feet, you start clapping. We can make time for that. OK, but once it became clear what had happened, this idea, yes, it was Anthony Rhoda who extended the invitation, but everybody stood up and clapped. And so everybody owes an apology. It's an embarrassment for Canada. And the prime minister's answer that we support Ukraine, no one's doubting that. That's not the issue here. No one thinks this means that we're not going to give military support to Ukraine or that we actually side with Russia. That's a ridiculous answer. The answer is it's embarrassing what happened here. And you should apologize, prime minister, because Vladimir Zelensky, you pick up the phone and call him at the drop of a hat. You can pick up the phone and call him now. Well, you know, you talk about responsibility, and Laura, I'm going to ask you about, you know, the Conservatives keep saying that it's it's not just Anthony Rota, and I, I hear what you're saying, Stephanie, that every member of Parliament needs to apologize, but when you listen to what the Conservatives are now saying, they say the Prime Minister bears responsibility for what happened and should do a personal apology as well. What do you say to that? You know, I think the Conservatives have a, a point to an extent that, you know, there's there's a greater responsibility here in the House of Commons. I think, every, as Stephanie said, every one person who stood up and clapped owes an apology for what happened. It was a huge embarrassment for Canada. Um, we know what happened here in terms of how this happened in broad strokes. I think a postmortem is important. The Conservatives are calling for that to an extent, but they don't want to hear from the Speaker. They want to hear from the Prime Minister. And so I think that's interesting that the Conservatives are saying they don't want to accept collective responsibility for what happened. There is an ex a level of collective responsibility here for everyone in Parliament and everyone in Canada who didn't pick up that yeah. what had happened. Laura is absolutely right on this. Uh, the, the Conservatives are trying to politicize this and make this uh, an issue with the Prime Minister should bear all, all responsibility for this. But look, I mean, when they said that this was a Ukrainian hero and a Canadian hero and you know, okay, okay, he fought against the Russians, okay, he then fought for the Germans. And anybody with a rudimentary understanding of, of the history of the Second World War knows that there were Ukrainians who were part of the death squads, killing Jews and Poles and Slavic. So everybody is responsible for this. They all, I think to Stephanie's point, everybody owes them an apology. Everybody was let down by the stupid move by uh, Anthony Roto, but everybody got up and clapped. Mm -hmm. And it's really not the right thing to be able just to point fingers, oh, it's all the prime minister's responsibility. Everybody's responsible, including us in the media, by the way. Yeah. We should have jumped on that we right see. away, and we failed. Yeah, yeah. yeah agreed. It uh, took a Jewish uh, organ, uh, a newspaper in the United States to break this story, and, and that's a failing on our behalf. Well, and to that, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the failure of history, we're now hearing B'nai B'rith, supported by a number of different groups across the country, saying, you know, this is actually a wake-up call for Ottawa. They need to, re to release the, the full and unredacted Duchesne report that was uh, published or put together back in the 80s that had to do with Nazis that came into Canada, parts of that, the second part of that report never shared. Uh, what do you make of that call, Stephanie? Absolutely legitimate. I mean, it's le it was legitimate from the day the call started getting made, and it's even more legitimate now. I mean, every year that goes by, we are losing the very people who bore witness to the Second World War, who, who survived the Holocaust, who fought... Um, you know, with the partisans for, for, you know, a freer Europe. We are losing them. We are losing their testimonies. We are losing their points of view. And to be able to make public history, to fully understand what happened during the Second World War and the aftermath of it, the way in which countries like Canada were complicit in letting in um, alleged or, or known 
war criminals. It is never more important than it is now, because as incidents as this show, when we forget our history, it is embarrassing, it is dangerous, it undercuts democracy. And I, I know I sound maybe a bit excessive here, but never has it been more important um, for us to understand history and to understand what we did in the past so that we don't keep doing it again, so that we don't keep honoring the very same people who have no business being honored. Can I, can I just interject? Yeah, of course. Sorry, Laura. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, one of the great historians, Irving Abella, who just recently died, and he wrote a fabulous book about none or too many, he said that it was easier to if, you, to, if you were a Nazi war criminal, it was easier in Canada if you were a Jew. And that is Canadian history. And we can't lose uh, face of that. We've got to take this seriously. And you're absolutely right. This is a, this is a learning moment for Canadians. Well, and to that, you know, when you talk about uh, this multicultural Canada, that's a concept that came about in the 70s. So there's a l long history before that, of course, going to World War II, the Nazis. Laura, last word to you as uh, we're quickly losing time right now. Well, I think if there's one silver lining to this horrific and extremely embarrassing incident for Canada, it may be that we do take a deeper look at our history and that we're seeing momentum uh, build up around these calls that have been coming for a very long time to open up the Duchesne Report, take a look at it, and really closely examine what Canada's role was in the aftermath of the Second World War. Well, without a doubt, you know, this this uh, incident that from the speech to the revelation last weekend, not over the controversy, but for now, uh, Bob, Stephanie, Laura, thank you very much for the time today. Thanks. Mary. Thanks for having us. To Saskatoon now, where we heard from the Saskatchewan Premier, Scott Moe, on Friday explaining his government's decision to recall the legislature earlier than expected and to invoke the notwithstanding clause to protect his government's pronoun policy. It's a regulation that requires parental consent when students under the age of 16 would like to use a different name or pronoun at school. But on Thursday, that policy's use was halted by the courts. This is what we have been consistent with over the course of the last number of weeks is uh, with respect to the policy um, uh, around parental inclusion uh, that we have been discussing is that um, should that policy not be in effect that we would use the tools that are available to the government to ensure that uh, it is in effect uh, moving forward and so this uh, really lines up with what we've been saying for a number of weeks now. What we uh, feel is of paramount importance is to provide clarity to uh, parents, to families and ultimately to school divisions and, and educators that are in our classrooms across the province. Um, this will provide that clarity. Um, we've said for as a, uh, for a number of weeks now that uh, there are tools available uh, uh, to the government to ensure that this policy is in place uh, moving forward through the next number of months and years, and uh, that is going to be the case. And so it's um, you know recalling the legislature, passing uh, this piece of legislation uh, as quickly as possible is really um, lines up with what we have been stating for a number of weeks. Is we're, we're intent on providing that clarity to families, to teachers, uh, and all ultimately to everyone in the province. The notwithstanding clause is not utilized uh, often in, in this province, uh, utilized uh, much more often in a province like Quebec. Uh, and listen, maybe just a comment with respect to the notwithstanding clause. Uh, it is, it is, it was part of those very chartered discussions advocated on um, by the premiers at the time of Saskatchewan and Alberta uh, because there was, as those, those uh, 
uh, rights that were included under under the charter um, were being discussed. There was other rights that were identified as well that were not included under the charter, and it was also identified that at some point in the future there could be the collision of these charter uh, protected rights and other rights that are important to Saskatchewan residents and to Canadian res residents as well. And when those rights collide, uh, the notwithstanding clause was provided to ensure that the elected government of the day would be able to make the decision um, on as to which of those rights uh, would uh, be in effect for the people that they ultimately re represent. And in this case, that's uh, the rights of a parent to ensure they're involved in their, their children's decision, um, bring our parents uh, closer to our children's classrooms, schools, and ultimately uh, uh, make for a more uh, reactionary uh, more reactionary and more uh, responsive education system in the province. No, this is uh, providing clarity for Saskatchewan residents by uh, you know saying that we are going to go in at uh, the earliest opportunity, which is in about a week. Uh, we're going to introduce and ultimately pass the legislation. We're going to notwithstand that legislation because of these collision of, of charter and non-charter rights uh, to provide clarity for uh, teachers in our classrooms, to provide clarity for the implementation plans that uh, our school divisions are working on. Uh, but most importantly, I think to provide clarity for uh, families, uh, children and parents across the province. And we will continue to follow the story for you. But for now, I'm Michael Serapio. And for everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching Primetime Politics. We'll see you again next week.